Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, everyone. So I'm here with Garrett Ryan today. He is an author and academic with a PhD in Greek and Roman history from the University of Michigan. He has a brand new book coming out, I believe September 1st, called Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators, and War Elephants, Frequently Asked Questions About the Ancient Greeks and Romans. And he also runs a website called toldinstone.com, featuring videos about history And he also has a YouTube channel with more videos about history. And you have quite a large number of subscribers, I noticed. I was just on there earlier today watching the video about Mount Olympus. So is -hmm. there anything else you want to say about yourself or your background? Um, No, that's great. I mean, first of all, thanks for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate this. Yeah, absolutely. Toldenstone. Um, both of which I started a few years ago to try and uh, help people learn more about the ancient Greeks and Romans. And uh, recently, the channel has taken off to my surprise, to be honest, but my happy, my happy surprise. Yeah, I noticed the uh, Mount Olympus video. You just posted it maybe yesterday, and it already had, you know, tens of thousands of views or something like that. So it looks like things are uh, going pretty well there. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, well, starting out, I-, I think my first question is. Uh, will you just tell us a little bit about how you came to decide to write this particular book? Sure. It was sort of a slow evolution. So as you mentioned, I went to Michigan um, for, for my PhD, and I taught there for a couple of years after finishing as a lecturer. Um, and when you're a lecturer, you do a lot of uh, general survey classes, things like Roman history, uh, Greek myth. And uh, in those courses, I'd often ask my students after a lecture or discussion, whatever we were doing, just questions they had they were curious about about the topic we had been discussing in class. And I got some of the strangest questions um, from my students. Um, and in particular, I remember once, um, I brought some people to the Detroit Institute of Arts for kind of a field trip. And we went to go see the uh, Greek and Roman collections, the sculptures. Um, and one student walked up to me and asked, um, you know, Dr. Ryan, why are so many of these statues naked? I'm like, well, it's actually a very good question. And there's kind of a lot to that. Um, and, and things like that were the genesis of the idea of writing this book about naked statues, gladiators, and war elephants. Um, but uh, it was sort of uh, that slow evolution. I started writing a couple years ago and then seriously about a year and a half ago. And uh, fortunately, I got picked up by a small publisher about a year ago. And uh, now we're just crossing our fingers, hoping that it all works out for me at publication date. Awesome. Well, you're starting to amass a following, it looks like. And I love the premise of the book. I was looking through some of the chapters that you sent me earlier. And it's just, it's so easy to read through it. You provide a lot of detail to all the questions. And it's kind of the questions that people have that they might be afraid to ask, or they've always wondered. And you might not, it might not be clear in the, in the typical history book, you know, uh, they might not answer some of these questions. So uh, I really like the concept a lot and can't wait to read more. Uh, So diving into some of the actual content of the book, like I said, I was watching the video about Mount Olympus earlier. I'm, I've always been fascinated with Mount Olympus. I'd love to actually hike up Mount Olympus sometime mm-hmm. if I can ever get to Greece. That's something on my bucket list to do. It looks pretty scary. But it got me thinking about the mythology 
and the gods and the heroes and the monsters and all that kind of thing, which I know that you cover in the book. So starting out, uh, I, I think one of the questions is about do, do the did the ancient Greeks and Romans actually believe their myths to be literally true? Uh, so that's kind of the first question I'll throw back to you. I know you have a whole <laughs> chapter and I know you can't cover everything in this interview, but that's something I've always wondered. Obviously, take America, for instance. Someone in a history book might describe America as being a predominantly Christian country, but mm -hmm. we know that that covers a. There are other religions. There are people that uh, there are atheists. There, you know, it, there there are people that are Christians that uh, are culturally Christian, but then there are Christians that literally believe in everything the Bible says. So there's a, a wide mm -hmm. range when you actually start looking at people. And so, what was that range like? And what do we know about kind of the Greek and Roman world? as far as did they actually believe their own myths? Yeah, well, it's a fascinating question. And there was obviously an enormous range of opinions. And we only know a few of those opinions, unfortunately. Um, almost all of those belonging to the elite who wrote their stuff down, of course. Um, it seems that from a pretty early date, from about the 5th century BC onward, educated Greeks and later Romans um, believed in the gods, at least in a general sense, believed that there were gods, at least it was a safe bet that there were gods, and it's good to sacrifice to those gods. Um, but regarding the myths with a great deal of skepticism, um, either they were symbolic, they made, they made them allegories, they were just untrue, um, they reflected kind of a human past and nothing to do with the gods. Um, oh. And different uh, philosophical schools evolved, uh, schools of thought on what the gods and myths had really been about. So, for example, um, Plato, you know, in, in the Republic, um, calls the myths famously kind of these uh, vicious fairy tales. You shouldn't even tell them to children because they mislead them about the gods. And the gods are cruel and uh, you know inhospitable to mankind. Um, Aristotle had a similar idea and their followers kind of picked up on those ideas and followed them through um, in later centuries. Um, so eventually uh, Platonism becomes kind of its own theology where there's a one kind of a high God, the one emanate. Um, and the Olympian gods, if they exist at all, are sort of um, either mischievous demons who get in the way of that one true God and his messengers, um, or they're just um, kind of faint reflections of aspects of that one true God. Um, the Stoics allegorize everything. They make the gods, so like um, Ares becomes the principle of war um, or you know aggression in war. Um, Zeus becomes the principle of uh, heavenly nourishment, of creation. And so they kind of take the myths and make them into these often very elaborate allegories about what they really mean. And we see often actually in some Christian theology, for example, trying to kind of allegorize Genesis, for example. Um, and then of course the Epicureans kind of take the, the short way through and deny the gods exist, um, or say that the gods um, are off in some you know, heavenly you know, uh, Shangri-La and don't really care much about the humans. But whether or not they believe in the myths, no matter how philosophical they are, educated are important as sort of a, a cultural literacy. You know, it's good to know the myths and they keep referencing them in their art, in their literature. So even if, you know, you don't believe that Zeus, you know, went off and, uh, you know, turns out to a cow and ran off with Europa, for example, um, you would have that on your dining room floor just because that's expected of an educated gentleman. Um, and so there's kind of this interesting uh, polarity between um, disbelief or at least skepticism on part of the educated elite, if nothing else, um, and continue reference to the myths um, in art and literature and just kind of everyday conversation. Interesting. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, you referenced this in your answer, but 
we don't uh, because we're reliant on certain ancient sources, which are oftentimes written by the elites. Um, what do we actually know about the average person? If you were to show up, if you were to teleport into some Greek town and you walk up to the first person you see in the marketplace, what do we know much about what that person might think when it comes to the mythology? Yeah, it's, it's one of those great, you know, unresolved and kind of unresolvable questions. You know, what did the man in the street think about the gods and their myths? You know, for ancient religion, we have um, archaeological evidence. We have these things called votive offerings. People might say the little statuette of a god um, or leave an, a record of their offering to a god in return for answered prayer. We find, you know, thousands of these in sanctuaries, which indicate that there was a great deal of popular belief in the gods, at least in this practical sense. But for the myths, um, you know, in the answer, I mentioned a couple of references um, from elite authors, of course, um, to popular belief in the myths. There's one guy who is, was a professional dream interpreter. That, that was his job, or at least his chosen avocation. And uh, he thought that people who dreamed about the myths, about the gods and heroes, and many did in his experience, um, that actually in them subconsciously. And so for him, that was evidence of widespread belief in the myths. Mm. Um, author is kind of a snide reference to the um, kind of the local peasantry around his estates. Uh, so they still believe that Agamemnon is still king somewhere. Um, again, a throwaway, probably a humorous remark for him and his, you know, educated friends. But I may believe that there really was this kind of widespread understanding of the myths and belief in them. Uh, so much literary for people who, didn't, who couldn't read, which is most people, probably nine-tenths of the people. Um, it was more knowing it from the, the sculptures, from the rituals, um, from oral stories. And there was so much of that around, you know, even watching performance at the theater, for example, was a way to learn the myths and the gods behind them. Um, and so that the gods and the myths were everywhere. We just aren't sure how literally they were taken by those who didn't write down their opinions. Hmm. What about some of the mortals in these, in these myths, uh, thinking about the age of Heracles and Achilles and, mm -hmm. and kind of the, the heroes from the the bronze age uh mm -hmm. so to speak what did they think about those heroes I, I kind of i have a sense that they felt that, that those heroes really existed um mm -hmm. but do we know much about what they thought about that era and in those people who sometimes had almost godlike abilities mm -hmm. yeah well, that, that's a good point you know they actually believe that was history for them you know, they, they actually separate that out from the myths about you know say creation or you know gods and the titans mm. they believed that maybe hercules didn't you know fight all those animals maybe you know theseus didn't actually you know uh against procrustes or whatever there truly were this 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 mythological age they actually dated it uh, they placed it to about our era uh actually very close to how we place our late bronze age mm. uh, between about 1500 and about 1200 bc there's this uh, wonderful little uh because it's sort of a, a chronology called uh, the, the Parian Marble. It's this uh, long list of dates and events they found in this island, in this uh, temple in a uh, Greek island. Um, and it, it dates all of the mythological events um, and shows them happening about a thousand years before that stone was carved in about 200 BC. Mm. And so th they believe that the Trojan War happened. They placed it around uh, 1184 BC, typically in our calendar, that there was some dispute about that. Um, and that, uh, that was kind of the end of the heroic age. So kind of the two centuries before the Trojan War were kind of when the heroes lived and fought. Um, and whenever they found things like mammoth bones or Ice Age animals, 
they thought that those actually were the heroes. Um, so like the Athenians found the bones of Theseus on a Greek island, um, probably just a mastodon or something, and then uh, buried them with great ceremony um, back in Athens. Um, and so they thought that they were real, that they were you know, these giant people, you know, because they were basing on these huge bones of mammoths, for example, um, that lived about a millennium before. Um, though how much they were tied to the myth of the gods, you know, they weren't totally sure about that, but there was at least this element of history, that the war had happened with Troy, um, and these men had walked the earth. Fascinating. Fascinating. So tying this, uh, this subject back into the Mount Olympus uh, mm-hmm. piece, and I know you cover this in your new video that you just put out, but I'm curious, did, uh, did people climb up to Mount Olympus to try to see the gods or did they believe that? I always wondered this as a kid, mm-hmm. like just, you know, they couldn't, they just go to the top and see if the gods really existed or, you know, mm-hmm. how did they think about that? Yeah. You know, so I've never climbed to the top of Mount Olympus, but I did spend a night in Dion, Greece, which is right at the base of the mountain. Mm. And I climbed about a third of the way up, kind of a long afternoon hike. And that day, uh, the clouds were very thick. And so they kind of, you know, you couldn't see beyond, uh, you know, about the middle of the mountain, just kind of this this, this uh, mysterious layer of clouds. Mm. And it's like that very often, actually, throughout most of the summer. And you could see how people would think there was something going on at the top of that high peak they couldn't see. Mm. Um, and we don't know if people have ever climbed it up recreationally, say, or just like out of sheer curiosity. That wasn't very common in antiquity. Um, we have a few records of people like Hadrian, who was very curious um, climbing like Mount Etna, for example, and a few mountains in Syria, um, apparently for the sheer hell of it, um, or just to see what was up there, to see the sunset, or the, sorry, the sunrise from Mount Etna, um, was supposed to be very colored by the, the ash in the sky. Um, but also, um, there was, as mentioned in the video, this altar on kind of a spur of Olympus. Now, Olympus has um, a several peaks. It's a kind of a big, messy mountain with about a dozen sub-peaks, um, all about the same height, at about 10,000 feet. Um, and on one of these peaks, kind of just below the highest summit, there was an altar of Zeus from at least 300 BC onward. Um, and at least once a year, someone went up there and sacrificed, probably a couple dozen people went up there and sacrificed to Zeus, hmm. full view of the whole summit. So at least those people could see the whole thing um, and knew there was no you know, palaces or gods on the very top. Um, but there was this idea that that was a special place. The gods were present somehow, if not visible, that their presence was there on the mountain. Supposedly, like the ashes of the sacrifice um, every year were never disturbed by, you know, over the years of the year of weather. So the gods were around Olympus, but they weren't necessarily like living physically on top of the mountain. Mm. A halfway house between there being no gods on top and them being having like, you know, nice little palaces that were visible to everybody. Yeah. So it's a little more nuanced than I think. Right. Sometimes it's described to people now. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't necessarily think there was some physical home. Mm-hmm of the gods at the top of the mountain. Uh, wow. Um, okay. So one of the chapters that you sent, uh, that I just love the title of this chapter, it, it, it was basically about whether or not the ancient Greeks and Romans believed in ghosts, monsters, and aliens. And so I wanted to get your opinion on that and starting out with the ghost piece, uh, obviously this is still something that a lot of people are interested in today is, ghosts and there's a whole subculture around haunted places and people trying to, you know, tell ghost stories and stuff like that. What did the ancient uh, Greeks and Romans think about ghosts? In some way, their ideas were kind of similar to ours, actually. 
Um, so, you know, they, of course, had this idea of the underworld um, where most people who died, you know, their souls went down there and stayed down there. Mm. Unless you were Pythagorean and believe in reincarnation, that's kind of a whole other thing. Um, but so for most of them, most Eastern Romans, when you died, you know, if you were properly buried, hadn't died violently, you went down to the underworld. Um, you were judged according to your life on earth, um, in some ideas anyway, and didn't bother anyone else again. But there were some people, um, those who died violently, especially if they died young. If you died in some way um, unrequited, you know, needing something or wanting something still in life, um, the idea was uh, that these people often lingered on earth, their spirits did, um, and these were ghosts. So ghosts are almost always bad news in the ancient world. Um, they're usually violent, they usually um, hate mortals, mm. and they'll often try to kill people who encounter them. You know, there's, a whole, there's a whole range of wonderful ghost stories that I, I include some of them in the answer because they're just such fun to you know, talk about and work with. Um, so we, we range from ghosts who kind of just don't care about people who have business of their own. So there's this kind of odd story about um, the ghost of Alexander the Great appearing suddenly around the year 220 AD um, in what's now Bulgaria and going on a mysterious pilgrimage with kind of a troop of other ghosts and then kind of vanishing a couple hundred miles later for no good reason without disturbing mm. anybody. So there's ghosts that don't harm anybody, but most ghosts, um, are, if they're not summoned by magician, which is kind of another, another, another thing, um, are there because they were killed um, or they're out for vengeance. And so uh, we hear of ghosts, you know, um, people, ghosts that are actually vampires, um, ghosts attacking tomb robbers. Um, so a lot of things that you would think of like kind of modern ghost culture where ghosts, those who have died violently or kind of I don't know, untimely um, is replicated in their beliefs. They even think they look kind of like we think ghosts do. Um, translucent often, you know, some they're trailing chains, that sort of thing, or their burial clothes. Um, so kind of kind of looking through a mirror in some ways. It's amazing how we're talking about thousands of years ago and this some of these common themes haven't changed mm -hmm. a whole lot. Um, so in terms of monsters, one of the things that you wrote was that the ancient Greeks and Romans were sort of willing to believe that monsters existed if they were really far away, kind of from distant, mm -hmm. unexplored places. And I think that's been another common thread that's gone on throughout a lot of history before we, mm -hmm. you know, really had a sense of where everything was and what the globe was like. What did mm -hmm. they think about monsters in, in the classical world? Yeah. And so again, it's kind of similar, kind of like a Nessie or Bigfoot, you know, kind of this here be dragons approach that kind of off the edges of the map, things get really weird. Mm. And, and there's two kinds of monsters really, you know, kind of under the, the, the our word monsters. The ones that live way off on the edges of, of the earth uh, in India or Scythia or deepest Africa, um, where these animals that are kind of often weird combinations of familiar animals or gargantuan versions of them um, live and do their thing. Um, so a famous example are the, the, gold digging ant, the gold digging ants of Herodotus. They're kind of the badger sized ants that dig huge burrows um, in what's now kind of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and uh, the locals supposedly go off and take gold from the thrown off earth in these burrows. They have to run away quickly because the ants will catch them otherwise, and they'll kill them because the ants are also vicious as well as being large and fast. Might be based upon uh, the Himalayan marmot, apparently. So kind of interesting how there's a germ of truth often in these stories, which shows how these there's often this willingness to believe that things in the edges of the earth are just very strange. Um, there's also another kind of class of monsters, which are kind of the monsters of, or the beasts of mythology. So even if you don't believe that the myths are true, you might think there might be things like um, satyrs or tritons hanging out, you know, in and around familiar places. 
Um, and there actually are, there are stuffed versions of these. There's a, a famous pickled triton uh, merman in this one Greek city, the city of Tangara, which is probably like a decayed dolphin or something. Uh, but they yeah. find this um, and they display it in a temple for centuries. They even featured on their coins, believe it or not. Um, so there's, there's kind of this, this willingness to believe both in monsters in distant lands um, and in the more familiar monsters of myth as kind of reflections of natural creatures um, that you know haven't been seen, but just might exist. Well, and you you talked some of you mentioned this a little bit earlier with the the role that fossils played mm-hmm. in some of this. How did that work? I mean, they were finding mm-hmm. fossils of of prehistoric animals, and they were mm-hmm. sort of playing a guessing game about what that could be. Well, I- exactly. So you know, if it wasn't a hero, so often it's like for a mammoth, for example. You know, the best preserved bones are often like the shoulder bone, the scapula, and like the femur which look kind of like a giant version of the human bones. They're the same in our bodies. So if you find that and just that without like the elephant's skull near it, that looks just a lot like a giant. Now that that becomes a mythological giant, like the ones who attacked Olympus or someone like a Theseus um, or an Orion, you know, a giant figure from mythology. Um, Alternatively, it's an actual monster of myth. So like the Romans, for example, find what's probably a beached whale, um, maybe a prehistoric beached whale um, in Joppa and what's now Israel. Um, and they think this is the monster that attacked Andromeda, um, you know, before Perseus saved her and turning it to stone. Holding out, um, training back to Rome, the display there is kind of like almost like an open-air museum. Mm. Temples have these bones that are either um, tied to creatures from myth um, or heroes from myth and are thought to be kind of the, the physical evidence for these things being real. So kind of this proto-scientific approach um, to the mythological uh, thought world. I mean, it, it's very compelling when you put yourself in their shoes. If they have this mm-hmm. elaborate mythology, then you're finding sort of unexplainable stuff that seems from the distant past. And mm-hmm. you fit that into, you know, the stories and ideas that are already popular and mm-hmm. already believed on one level or another. It makes, you know, it makes perfect sense uh, to me. Um, yeah. So, okay. So the last one that you addressed was aliens. And UFOs. Mm-hmm. And so this is something uh, we actually, in the last interview I did uh, for the podcast, we talked some mm-hmm. about ancient aliens and some of these things. This is obviously a popular, uh, you know, subject today. Did the ancient people exp- have encounters with aliens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What was the, uh, what was the, what were their beliefs about aliens? Did they conceive of something called aliens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, no, it looks like. Um, so they may, some people who you want to believe in these things, believe that they did see UFOs. So there's like references to things like um, flaming shields in the air a few times. People want to see that as evidence for um, like Roman UFO sightings. Um, we don't know what, you know what to think about that, but they did not conceive of a universe that had, um, you know, th- th- some people thought there were many other planets besides the canonical seven. Um, some philosophers thought this, but they didn't think those were inhabited by animal, by creatures like us. Mm. Um, famous um, kind of proto-science fiction piece by the satirist Lucian, where he goes to the moon and finds all these creatures there. But it's very much a satire of things happening on Earth. It's not that they actually believe there was, you know, little green men, you know, up in the, you know, up up, up in the heavens. Um, for the Greeks and Romans, um, the the moon kind of marked, you know, the moon, the first planet. Um, marked the boundary between, you know, kind of the terrestrial world, the world of change and of mankind and of, you know, mutation, um, and the, the superlunary world, the world that was timeless, the domain of the gods. 
Um, so they thought that usually the the plants are inhabited by the gods. Uh, that's where, why we name them after the gods, actually, and kind of that, that idea. Um, or by things like, like demons, other spirits, um, but not by other mortal creatures, as far as we can tell. You know, the, the idea comes much, much later. And so they were aware of the distinctions between stars and planets yeah. and that kind of mm-hmm. thing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so planet just means, you know, wanderer. You know, those things that move across the sky. So they knew that there are things that had these erratic orbits, you know, around the Earth, or that mm-hmm. they, they had a geocentric idea of the universe. Um, they knew that those were much closer than the stars were. Because um, the stars didn't move, or at least seasons. Um, and so they had this, this distinction between these near bodies, which either were the gods or lived on by the gods or linked to the gods in some way. And this kind of eternal, immutable, um, you know, series of stars way off in the far distance. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. I mean, I, you know, just as a lay person who doesn't know much mm-hmm. about astronomy, I don't, you know, I can't distinguish between planets oh, yeah, and stars and either, stuff unless know. someone <laughs> explains it to me. So they really had mm-hmm. a, they had a more sophisticated way of distinguishing things than I realized. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So the, the, the third subject I wanted to touch on, and, and of course, these are just a few of the questions from your book, which has many more questions and many more chapters and things. This is kind of a preview. The third one was about the oracles mm-hmm. and the Oracle of Delphi specifically. Uh, the title of the chapter is, was the Oracle of Delphi high on fumes? <laughs> so before we get to that question, can you sort of just give a, a brief summary of what were the oracles in the ancient Greek world and why, why were they important? Yeah, so the Greeks and the Romans after them thought that the world around them was full of signs, um, signs from the gods, signs from other, you know, supernatural um, entities, um, and that all you needed was to interpret them, to have a good sense of, you know, what to do in a given course of action, how to govern your own life. And the best interpreters of all these signs around you, these signs and omens, or the best resource, if you were faced with a hard decision, um, was to talk to an oracle. Now, there are, there are many dozens of oracles all around the Greek and Roman world, and they work in many different ways. You know, some you consult a physical person, um, a prophet or a prophetess, who is the medium of a god. And others, um, an animal is the prophet. Um, so there's like a kind of a fun example. that There's a snake, for example, um, a big snake at one point that's supposed to be able to tell um, if a woman is a virgin or not. She, you know, kind of a, so it's the anxieties of the ancient world. Um, another one, there's a fish oracle where they call fish with a flute and how many fish come or how they come um, speaks the, the will of the gods. Um, or even a pillar of flame is kind of this volcanic phenomenon they throw things into and how the, that flame reacts to the thing they throw into it is the oracle's response. But the more famous oracles, the ones that are distinguished, the ones that have, you know, people who are in the know go to, um, are usually staffed by people. Um, and they're almost all dedicated to Apollo, the god of prophecy. Um, and of these, so that the big three are kind of Claros, in Asia Minor, um, Didyma, also in Asia Minor, um, and Delphi in central Greece. Hmm. Um, and so the, the Oracle of Delphi is, of course, the famous Greek oracle. And it's, its heyday is kind of in the archaic period, early in Greek history. Um, it kind of loses some, uh, some cachet after uh, about the Persian Wars or so. Um, and uh, there's only, only nine days a year does the oracle, this is the Pythia, she's called, uh, the prophetess, um, give her prophecies. Um, and it's a very high demand day. And people come from all over Greece to consult on things ranging from um, treaties to setting of colonies to a personal affairs, like whether I should get married to this person or that person, or whether I should avoid this trip or that trip. Um, and so people come to ask all kinds of things. Um, usually they phrase their questions in this kind of yes or no way. 
So the Oracle can have a straightforward answer. You know, should I do this thing or that thing? Should I do, do this or not do this? Um, and so they, they stand in line. It's often a very long line at Delphi because it's very popular. Um, and if their city happens to have good relationship with Delphi, if it's kind of performed some service at Delphi, built a temple for it, um, they had to kind of jump the queue and go to the head of the line. It's kind of a nice service. Hmm. So they got to wait. Um, and when they finally get to the head of the line, they um, offer sacrifice, usually a goat, at a little altar there beside the temple entrance, um, and go into a sort of antechamber um, where they can hear the prophetess, the Pythia, but they can't see her. Um, this appears to have been um, the Pythia's chamber. So the Oracle of Delphi um, was focused on this temple, the Temple of Apollo, um, kind of in the middle of this larger sanctuary. And towards the back of the temple, um, where the statue of the god was normally located, there's this sub small subterranean chamber where the prophetess sat. Um, and the clients went into a chamber that was kind of uh, a short distance from that subterranean uh, room. They could uh, hear the prophetess, but not see her. They asked their question. And then the, the prophetess, um, sitting on a tripod in the middle of that room, holding a laurel of Apollo, Apollo's tree, um, then gave her response which was translated by one of the prophets who stood with her. There was kind of a, sta a male staff around the prophetess um, and made a nice neat hexameter poetry um, for the petitioner to take back home. And so the, the big debate about Delphi um, starting about 15, about 20 years ago, actually even long before that, is whether all of these prophecies were motivated by like a gas emitting from the, 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 the earth, you know, below the, the oracle's seat. So, we're talking about fumes coming up um, mm -hmm. underground and then creating a reaction in the uh, the prophet, the prophetess that mm -hmm. then then they have to interpret. Is that the idea? Yeah. So there, there's this, this kind of popular image, um, like the movie 300, for example. That's have, what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Like, you know, kind of like goes nuts. He's like, you know, dancing around and stuff. Right. It's kind of the, the image of the Oracle. It's, she's like raving mad. She's like, you know, just, just spouting gibberish. It's interpreted then by the, these male prophets. And that's not really true. You know, that happened once in Greek history um, when a prophetess was, when the, the Pythia was forced to prophesy um, kind of out of, off on a, a bad day and the God possessed her and things didn't go real well. But normally she seemed to have spoken more or less cleanly um, in, an, in an ordinary articulate manner. Um, and this idea that, you know, she was raving mad is kind of later um, elaboration happened. Mm. This image, I think it's in Strabo, um, who's a geographer from the Roman era, um, where the, it describes the, the the chamber she's sitting in as being filled with this fumes, you know, kind of coming out from this crack, and she's you know over the crack and being inspired by it. There's also this kind of wonderful myth um, that they first found the the, uh, the place of the oracle when all these goats that were being herded locally would kind of go into, go into hysterics around this crack in the earth. They would kind of like go into spasms. And short of the shepherds, they try to retrieve their goats. Um, and they discover this way that the God was lived, you know, in this place where this stuff streamed up from the earth. So there are ancient sources that seem to indicate that there was something happening there. Um, but when they excavated the temple about a hundred years ago, um, they found nothing, just this bare rock chamber beneath the temple um, with no visible cracks um, and no apparent indication of anything happening there. So the idea was that this is all just sort of literary elaboration that later people thought that happened. You know, they never actually saw the, the temple itself. They never saw into that chamber. And they kind of um, imagined all this stuff happening. But about 20 years ago, a team of geologists um, surveyed the area around Delphi and found that the limestone beneath the sanctuary is bituminous. It contains uh, tar, other kind of petrochemicals. Um, and that 
a small earthquake, kind of one of these microquakes that occurs in that region, it was thought, would vaporize those chemicals and set up a stream of things like, um, like butane, ethane, and ethylene, um, which are intoxicating. So like ethylene used to be um, used as an anesthesia. And so the theory was that, you know, that, that there's actually a small crack somewhere in that chamber and that this you know, um, ethylene is kind of spewing up through the crack periodically um, and making the oracle high. But later studies in the last 10 years really have kind of discounted all of that. You know, there's not enough evidence for that happening. Mm. Uh, and for one thing, ethylene is flammable. I mean, we never hear about any fires in the sanctuary. Um, let's never hear about any of people who are asking questions who are right next to the oracle about them going off their heads and getting high. So, you know, if there was ethylene seeping into this chamber, it was in very small trace amounts, we think. Um, and so it's probably, as far as we can tell, um, just a literary elaboration. And there really was that she wasn't actually high. She was just speaking normally in most cases and being interpreted by these, you know, dudes around her. Mm. Okay. We think. But again, you know, we can't be totally sure. Right, right. And I, you know, I have to say, I've read a lot of Greek history, uh, more Greek than Roman, certainly. But these, these are the kinds of questions that when I read about the oracles, you know, even in modern works, they don't really explain oftentimes how they work. They kind of assume mm -hmm. that the reader already understands this stuff. Um, and, you know, when maybe no one today totally understands it. And right. it's, uh, you know, so I, I think that I just appreciate sort of how clearly you're explaining answers to these questions that are really fundamental, but are for whatever reason sort of glossed over uh, a lot of the time. Um, so I think those are the the major subjects I, I wanted to touch on today. Obviously, in your new book, uh, you go into a lot more detail about all kinds of things, including gladiators and statues and um, and and many other chapters. Is there anything else you want to add or uh, point people toward in terms of following your work? Um, yeah, so besides the book, which of course I think that people who like this podcast might really enjoy, or I hope so. Um, you know, my channel on Tolton Stone, um, I release a video every week about all sorts of things, Greek and Roman. Um, I go to places, um, you know, Roman sites, Greek sites. Um, I explore questions like the ones in my book. Um, I try to show, talk about the legacies of the classical world in various ways. So um, if you're intrigued by what I do and what's in the book, um, maybe check out Told in Stone. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And we'll definitely put a link to that as well as the book uh, so people can order that uh, on our website. And again, the book is titled Naked Statues, Fat Gladiators, and War Elephants, Frequently Asked Questions About the Ancient Greeks and Romans. And am I right in saying that that is available on September 1st? That's right. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad that I came across this book and I discovered you and you came on the show. I'm, I can't wait to dive more into the YouTube channel as well. The videos are excellent and I have a feeling it's going to, uh, the book is going to sell quite well and you're going to keep building on this following because it, it is, uh, you know, you clearly have a, a, a great talent for explaining some of these things. So, uh, with that said, thank you, Garrett, and uh, I'm sure that we'll be in touch in the future. Well, 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 thanks so much, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.